0: Hello and welcome to this edition of Podularity for the week of the 12th of October 2009. My name is George Miller, and Podularity is the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. Tomorrow evening in London, the John D. Kritikos Prize will be awarded to the book which, in the opinion of the judges, is the best publication of the year on the subject of Greece, ancient or modern it can be awarded to a work of literature history archaeology philosophy indeed any discipline as long as it's written in english the prize was set up by john d Criticos, a greek shipowner who spent much of his career in london in order to promote anglo-hellenic understanding and the recipient of this year's prize is stephen halliwell professor of greek at the university of st andrews and the author of the monumental greek laughter published by cambridge university press stephen's book looks at what laughter meant in ancient Greek society, how it functioned, and what it tells us about the broader currents of that culture. It's a work of considerable substance in every sense of the word, full of insights into what a different phenomenon laughter was to the ancient Greeks. I found it particularly fascinating on the transition from pagan to early Christian views of laughter. When I was in Scotland in the late summer, I met up with Stephen in Edinburgh to interview him about the book. He began learning ancient Greek at the age of eleven, and from that moment on was hooked. A degree and then a doctorate on aristophanic comedy at Oxford followed. What then, I asked him, led him to the subject of Greek laughter?
1: Well, it does undoubtedly come out of my original, uh, as I said, doctoral interest in, in comedy, specifically in Aristophanes, but it's, it's taken on a life of its own, really. While I was working on comedy, I used to look outside the genre for references to NAFTA and indications of how laughter might have been um, experienced and appraised within Greek culture. So I found myself almost accidentally over a period of years building up a a great dossier of references to NAFTA from all over the place, from philosophical texts, other poetic genres, even law court speeches and Mm -hmm. so forth. And then in the early 1990s, I wrote an article for a journal called the uses of NAFTA in Greek culture, which was really just trying to map out a subject that I thought at the time somebody might want to take further. And then I realised that uh, people were citing this a lot, and I got a lot of um, praise for it, even from people who didn't necessarily praise me for anything else. <laughs> so, uh, mm-hmm. a bit by, And I realised I still had this this huge dossier. Actually, I did, I'd skimmed the surface of it, really, for this particular article. So at a certain stage, I thought, right, I'm going to go back and, and write a book about this. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of accidental outgrowth from my interesting comedy. But it, I did end up thinking of it as as something at least semi-independent of comedy. And I I even at one stage actually wanted to make the book about Greek laughter without talking about comedy, because it would have been a little bit uh, of a strain to
0: carry that off. Mm. Yes, I I wanted to ask you to to say a little bit about that, because you're not writing a history of comedy, and you're not writing about humour. You're writing about laughter. Can you you just distinguish those things?
1: Yes. Well, I'm trying to use laughter as a kind of prism, I suppose, through which to examine certain features of the broader culture because I built up this dossier of material and there's actually a very great deal of it Greeks talk a lot about laughter and so there are a lot of perceptions and representations of laughter in prose texts and poetic texts it's used all over the place it's referred to it's discussed by philosophers and others so I really wanted to use it as a prison through which to look at a wider range of Greek values and tensions within the culture, ways in which Greeks think about many different aspects of life, actually. So need- needless to say, you can never fully escape from comedy because you're, you're, you've got these crisscrossing roads, which, all of which probably at some point go through comedy, especially through mm-hmm. aristophanic old comedy, which, you know, touches on just about everything in the world one way or another. But I very much wanted to build up this larger picture of a cultural landscape.
0: Mm. And as you say, there is a wealth of material from texts of all sorts and also iconographic material as well. Absolutely, yes.
1: And, you know, people have more generally been working on some of this, let's say, roughly in the last uh, decade or so. I mean, I've, I've been invited myself to more than one. Conference, and uh, not, not just in the United Kingdom. There was a big French conference a few years ago. So people have been getting interested in it about uh, over the last decade or so. But um, but no one had ever tried to put together a, a monograph that showed just how rich the material was. I think, mm-hmm. and that also had a kind of argument to it. I mean, the book isn't built built around one sim- simple argument, but it's it has got a it's got a kind of intellectual agenda, and I'm trying to um, build up a single perspective, if you like, or or generate the perspective of a single mind on the material.
0: Mm. Say a little bit more, then, about what what that perspective is.
1: Well, for a start, the book forms a kind of arc, really. I mean, it starts with Homer and it ends with early Christianity. And I had that in my mind from quite an early stage, especially when I discovered, and I hadn't always known this, and a lot of people still don't know it, just how much early Christian material there is on after. For a start, there's a lot of polemical... Um, Christian material uh, arguing against NAFTA because it perceives it as a sort of pagan phenomenon, actually. And, uh, you know, I ended up writing at great length, for example, about the sermons of John Chrysostom, who who actually preached again and again. It seems very extraordinary, really. And and not many people know this. He preached against NAFTA Mm. to big congregations, first in Antioch and then later in Constantinople, where he was a bishop. So these are really treatises in in sermon form against NephTA, so I, I had in mind from the outset this, as it were, this um, destination where Christianity was going to collide with with paganism. but I, and I wanted to start this great arc with Homer, who has this vision of the world in which, among other things, the gods themselves collapse into what's called in Greek unquenchable laughter, both in the Iliad and the Odyssey. So I really thought of the book in part as a kind of a journey from an archaic world, which is in a sense not ours, and which we have to work very hard to look back at, a world in which people thought of the divine itself as being capable of laughter, and then coming all the way to the beginnings of Christianity, which in a sense is much more like the beginnings of, of our world, whatever we may believe as individuals. So the book's got that kind of arc to it, and then I built it up, I suppose, uh, in a series of stages. I mean, I could have done it in many different ways, but, um, and there is some comedy in the middle of the book. But I also wanted to get quite a lot of philosophy in it, because I, I work, as it were, half the time on Greek philosophy, and I was very struck by the fact that um, almost every ancient school of philosophy has a view of or one way or another. I mean, in some cases very obviously so, in others less obviously so, and you have, you have to work a bit harder at excavating the evidence. But it's, it's part of the map of ancient philosophy once you start looking for it, which no one had ever really hmm. done before. And you certainly can't say that about all periods of Western philosophy. You know, there are many major Western philosophers who just have never use the word as it were or, or touched on the subject whereas everywhere in ancient philosophy you can you can find some sort of view of left i think partly because whatever else it does all ancient philosophy always maintains an existential dimension it's always preoccupied at some level with how to live and with the choice of lives and therefore, it addresses all sorts of issues about the, the relationship between body and mind, um, things like friendship, how, how to be part of a society and so forth. So that's, I
0: think, partly um, how laughter comes into it. And as you suggest, it's a doubly rich subject because not only do you have the primary material, if I can put it that mm-hmm. way, you also have the reflection upon it. So it's, Absolutely. it's, it's something which clearly preoccupied the ancient Greeks. Absolutely yes.
1: I mean, in a sense, you only have the secondary material because we can no longer hear Greeks laughing or see them (laughs) (laughs) laughing. And yet, we've got all this um, so-called secondary evidence. I mean, it isn't secondary really. It's a kind of reworking of of laughter through perceptions, observations, literary and philosophical uh, constructions, and so forth. But yes, in a sense, it it is a double um, structure. One's trying to get at. One's trying to uh, read through these texts to the 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 texture of life and. the, the values and mentalities that structured life within the culture mm. yes
0: and the fact that it was so much reflected on is indicative of the fact that it was in some way problematic it was, it oh, was troublesome
1: absolutely absolutely no that's that's a, that's a very shrewd point and indeed I thought I thought it's a subject all along really as investigating after as a kind of problem or a set of problems for the Greeks. Because it's argued over, exactly, and the philosophers, for example, argue over it. But also, even if you go back to Homer, for example, it isn't there isn't an awful lot of laughter in Homer, but there are, there are some critical uses of it. I mean, I've mentioned the gods already, but, uh, for example, in the Odyssey, the suitors, you know, these, these illicit uh, squatters, if you like, in the palace of Odysseus, who end up being slaughtered by him, you know, in a, in a, in a bloodbath, in in book 22, they spend a great deal of their time nerfing, and and we're told that often enough for us to build up this picture of them as almost perpetually uh, nerfing. And that immediately means it's a problem, of course, in the Odyssey. And you get this wonderful counterpoint, I I think, in the Odyssey between the perpetually, but also in a sense, unthinkingly nerfing suitors, and the hero himself, Odysseus, who is constantly suppressing his feelings, including any kind of urge to laugh, and indeed he's he's one of the great Greek figures, there are a series of them, Socrates is another, who are depicted as internalising laughter. He sometimes laughs internally, sardonically at one point, I think it's, he smiles smart, uh, sardonically in his heart, as he works himself towards mm. the, the revenge against the suitors. So that's that's a wonderful uh, counterpoint in the Odyssey, I think. And, of course, it's very problematic. I mean, uh, the fact that naphTA is projected so much onto these vile suitors who are ruining Odysseus's property and threatening his wife and so forth. It's also a problem with, with the gods, you know. I mean, um, what what do we make of the fact that they never And um, they never one another to some extent. They never, this is actually quite an important argument in the book, they never, according to me... Really laugh at human beings. Uh, they they never laugh at human existence itself. That was a question I tried to um, to address at one point. There are people I think who rather casually think that they do, but they they never actually do. In mm. fact, they're very interested in human life.
0: But anyway, yes, it's a problem. It's a problem everywhere. Yes, the question of the appropriateness of laughter or the contexts in which laughter is appropriate is mm. obviously exists in in all mm. cultures. Mm. But it seemed to me in in the book that. In ancient Greece, there was an ambivalence about laughter and uncertainty about whether it belonged with the, the realm of the gods. It, it, yeah. it was a, a noble characteristic, or whether it was ignoble and almost exactly. sort of sort of bestial. And that was that was yes. being sort of played out um, yes. in, in many different contexts.
1: Absolutely, yes. No, that that's right. And that's another sense, indeed, in which it's it's problematic. Um, you get you get a whole series of polarities within Greek culture, which are used to discuss and argue. Over laughter. One I use a lot is the distinction or the contrast between um, pl- playfulness, where laughter is simply a kind of regression to childlike habits and it has no consequences, and then on the other hand, uh, laughter, which is a weapon of aggression. Or as you say, you, uh, the, 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 the gods and the question of whether animals laugh in c- comes into some of the sources. But but more generally, I think it's important to stress that laughter is a, is a problem in Greek culture, in part because the Greeks live in what anthropologists at least at one stage used to call a a shame culture. I mean, this term has become a bit problematic and of Mm -hmm. course it needs modifying and and qualifying and so forth. But there's no doubt at all that uh, broadly speaking, in Greek antiquity, you have uh, communities with very, very highly developed senses of shame, and, and, w- and which in a sense are built much more about uh, around shame than they are around guilt, which is associated historically much more with the development of a religion like Christianity. Now, in a shame culture, what matters more than anything else is... The kind of esteem that you or, or do or do not possess in the eyes of your peers and your community. And therefore how people treat you publicly, whether they treat you with honour and respect or whether they belittle you, whether they mock you and so forth, becomes a really big thing. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult for uh, most Greeks in antiquity, for example, to be laughed at and not to care about it. Some of the sources refer to f- figures of the kind that do that and they refer to them specifically as aberrant and sort of weird, you know, this 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 sort of pathetic character here doesn't mind being yes. nerfed at, you know, that immediately makes you somehow uh, flawed and substandard within a shame culture, because really you, you, should, uh, you should regard this as an insult that requires some sort of reprisal. And that's the norm right the way through ancient Greece, although there are obviously all sorts of um, variations on it. So th- I think that's a key point as well, this idea of a shame culture and one within which... Um, laughter could never be anything but problematic Hmm. unless you can somehow ring fence it as a kind of play which people keep trying to do in different contexts. you know then then you 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 have to be be able to say what the rules of the game are you know it has to be with your friends essentially and it maybe has to be ritualized in some way so um, there's a chapter in my book about the greek symposium this highly ritualized form of drinking party Uh, Very, very small groups of people drinking in very close, intimate, face-to-face contact. And the whole thing is ritualised in a way which, um, as it were, sets up barriers between you and the outside world. Although even then, I mean, there's a lot of material about uh, how laughter can get out of control at the symposia and can actually, you know, start to introduce cracks into this supposedly um, solid form of ritual.
0: They have a verb to laugh down, don't oh, they? And absolutely. that, that, that and seems to come up time I'm, and time again. Yes,
1: yes. I'm, I'm, I made the mistake, I think, at one point using a... A database of putting in a, a search of that verb, you know, and it comes up about ten thousand <laughs> times. There's no way you could actually look up every. It's extraordinary. It? It's just a, it's just a standard compound verb. That's right. With this, with this prefix meaning down in a, in a hostile, aggressive sense. I mean, you know, the same prefix is is used in quite a few other Greek verbs and unambiguously denotes an act or a form of conduct which is is designed to um, express uh, aggression towards others, to wound others, to insult them.
0: Now, tell me about the, the Greek smile that we associate, that the enigmatic expression on the <laughs> face of some statues, because you mm. have interesting things to say about that. In, the, in the archaic mm.
1: period, yes. Well, it's normally called the archaic smile. Yes, I discuss it in an appendix. Well, I wish I could give you, you know, a really strong theory on this, <laughs> I did a lot of reading on it. I really looked at just about every major modern art historian who's dealt with the material from that period. Yes, it's characteristic of statues in particular, although there are some cases on in vase painting as well, it's been explained in many different ways, running right the way from purely technical explanations. I mean, which are non-starters, I think, as far as I understand. There are people who said, well, you know, if you if you have chisels of a certain kind and you're trying to depict a face in this way, you know, with other stylistic constraints, then you more or less have to do with this with the mouth, which seems to be preposterous. But all the way from that to you know, grand theories about um, whether these statues are showing divinities and so forth. I mean, my own my own take on it, really, it's not exactly. Uh, a single thesis is that it is definitely an expressive feature. There's no way at all in which it was inevitable. It's true that it seems in some sense to be a borrowing. It's a cultural borrowing because things very like it are found in Egypt mm-hmm. and in other Near Eastern cultures at much earlier dates. But that doesn't explain it either, of course. Some people have, have said, oh, well, it's a borrowing, you see. So that, but that, of course, doesn't explain it because the question yeah, well, remains why <laughs> borrow and why maintain it in this way and why for this peer and then why does it go and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. So, But my view is that it is enigmatic and that its expressiveness is as it were pulling the viewer of one of these statues into a sort of speculation what is going on because smiles in many cultures but certainly in in early Greece are thought of as enigmatic They're, they're telling you they're signaling that something is happening in the mind behind the face but they're not telling you exactly what and really, to be sure what a smile signifies, you need to have a lot of context. You know, you need to know the person, or you need to, you need you, you need to know what what's led up to it, and you need to have choices of interpretation available to. You. Whereas if you're just presented with a smile without that contextual background, then it's almost by definition going to be intriguing and open to multiple explanations. And I think that is what's going on. I mean, it's a, it is it's a sign of life as well. Some art historians have said when well, it's a sign of animation, it brings the statue alive and of course it suits the fact that statues can't move I mean so there are you know there are a limited number of forms of expression that you can give these relatively um, strictly stylized early Greek statues or archaic Greek statues and the smiles is, is perfect for that purpose mm. though because it's it's got a kind of gentleness and stillness to it but it is it's signaling animation and the presence of a mind behind the face so in a way it's undercutting the the fact that this is just a piece of stone or whatever it's it's projecting or inviting the viewer to project behind the face.
0: You talked about shame culture and laughing down, and clearly laughter operates in in different ways Mm. in ancient Greek culture from it Mm. it does for us today. And I wondered... If you felt exploring Greek culture through this prism made it more or less familiar, made it a closer or further away from us in, in terms of its its mentalities,
1: that's a very big question, isn't it, and not not an easy one to uh, to give a, to, to give a short answer to. Um, I was I certainly thought that when I was writing the book that I I wanted to work hard at using it to keep the culture at a bit of a distance from us. I mean, I am in general quite keen on not rushing to feel that we are on the same wavelengths as, as the ancient Greeks. You know, and, and teaching my students, I find, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the easiest mistake for them to make is to think, oh, well, they're just like us, so, you know, I don't have to bother reading too much of this text because I know what they're like, really. They must have been interested in this. They must have thought that way. And, you know, it's much easier to, to fall into that trap. And therefore, I, as it were, am professionally disposed towards... Pulling things the other way, really. So that's that, that's the, that's the way I felt as I wrote. Now, obviously, I don't know what the um, the effect of the book on on, on other people will be, but um, I think it is very different, really. Though in many ways, clearly, we we've got to be able to understand some of it, otherwise we couldn't um, begin to interpret it. And this is a perpetual. Kind of dilemma, really, in in the interpretation of any other culture. Although one, I would add, actually, it's a perpetual dilemma in the interpretation of um, you know one's own world and here and now. You know, and even you know, face to face encounter like this. Um, but I, I think I do think that a, a lot of what I put into the book does it. Well, it, it's meant to be interesting, I suppose, on balance, more because of its alien field, or perhaps alien is overstating it, but its its sense of difference. Because the more you, of course, you embed the study of these things in particular uh, social and cultural forms of behaviour, institutions, I mean, I talk about religious festivals so for, uh, and so forth, which clearly we, we don't have exactly the same, the same forms of life, if you like, there. So the more you embed the study of a behaviour like NAFTA within... Uh, forms of life, cultural institutions. I think the more you have to respect difference, at any rate. Though clearly, at many points, you can you can draw parallels with other cultures. Mm. Um, though I think I, th- I suspect myself that the the most obvious parallels would be with other pre-modern cultures. I mean, mm. there are quite a lot of interesting connections with. Um, with Renaissance cultures, for example, which um, are also, I think, in many ways, quite alien to us. Still, Actually, we think are not very far away, the Renaissance. <laughs> but, you know, there are, there, uh, the Renaissance also it just happens to be a, another period in which there's an enormous amount of um, rich reflection on laughter in literature and philosophy, medical writing, for example. And in a lot of the texts yeah. I study in my book were picked up by people in the Renaissance. And, I, you know, and also I found myself again and again coming back to people like Erasmus and Montaigne are very interested yes. in a lot of the texts I was I was working with uh, and mm-hmm. indeed I would if one had longer I would make a case of saying that some of these great figures were actually reading certain ancient texts much more acutely than modern scholars read them I mean they weren't reading them with the same apparatus of scholarship yeah. but they were reading them with a very strong feel for the the human interest of the mentalities involved and so forth I mean it's certainly true of those two intellectual giants mm-hmm. Um so there, there are interesting connections one might draw with other pre-modern cultures, uh, medieval connections as well. And of course, like everyone who writes about Lefter, I was influenced a bit by uh, Mikhail Bakhtin mm. and his theory of carnival. And of course, that's a theory that was based above all on the late medieval and renaissance periods, but which also has some ancient um, antecedents. And Bakhtin does talk about some bits and pieces, though rather frustratingly, he never quite gets stuck into the mm. ancient material as much as some of us mm. wish he had mm. done.
0: I mean, I suppose another way of rephrasing that question would be, to what degree is there overlap between the- occasions when ancient Greeks would have laughed and when we would laugh today? Is it a very small overlap?
1: I'm not immediately sure how to quantify it. I mean, one would have to, as it were, to, to, to go through and, and calibrate it. Um, I think where religion's concerned, for example, um, there's quite a big gap, although obviously it depends which modern religion you start from but the idea of the idea of after having a really central role in in religious festivals and even in acts of worship which is undoubtedly the case for many ancient Greek cultures. It's not just that people were laughing around the fringes of these festivals, you know, mm. and then went into <clears throat> solemn religious mood at the heart of them. In the Eleusinian Mysteries, for example, one of the most important initiatory mystery mystery cults of antiquity, we can see very specifically that laughter has a symbolic, expressive role at several stages. And indeed, there's a whole myth that goes with it. The myth about um, the goddess Demeter losing her daughter Persephone. You know, she's, mm. she's snatched by the god of the underworld. It's some sort of fertility myth because she ends up coming back for part of each year and so the myth is somehow encoding the idea of the cycle of the seasons and the, the fertility of the world and so forth. But within that story in its narrative form, Demeter wanders the earth as a as a grief-stricken mother having lost her daughter. and it's only when she's made to laugh by a woman called usually called Iambi, that in some sense she, even though she's a goddess, is brought back to life in her own mind and spirit and so that's you know that's itself what's sometimes called an etiological myth a myth that supposedly explains the origins of something and it's explaining the origin of a form of worship now there's no overlap there with most kinds of modern certainly most kinds of modern worship within monotheism if you think of something different like the symposium you know the drinking party where friends are laughing with one another then there it looks on the surface as though well that's much easier to understand most of us still get together and drink with friends and and have a good deal of laughter. but even there there's so much Culturally specific ritualization, and there are so many um, elements of the occasion are very different. You know, most of us don't recline on couches, semi-nude, with incense in the middle of the room, and uh, and with prayers and so on. then, because you know, I mean, um, some cultural historians would say even that the symposium is a sort of religious event. So, you know, again, I yes, I think the more I the more I ponder these <laughs> these big questions you've just asked, the more I, I I do feel the the urge to say that there is there's always some kind of gap between our own intuitions about NAFTA. but you know they are the same species and i think mm. it's crazy to pretend that cultures don't have anything in common otherwise i say we wouldn't we would just mm. have to stare at them and wonder what yes. the hell is going on and we clearly don't we we yes. have all sorts of toeholds i suppose on the, on the forms of life that we as uh, particularly when we can re- read the language mm. um, But, no i think i don't think there is an enormous overlap no uh, but it, it's a complex question isn't it partly because the, the texts and evidence I'm dealing with have gone on being interpreted. And the interpretation has its own history. And as I indicated earlier, you know, I think Erasmus, for example, was very much on the wavelength of certain things in in Lucian's dialogues, which which later readers somehow lose. So, you know, it's not a simple question of just us and them. You'd have to look at different stages of Western culture and the different phases of interpretation that Greek culture has been open to over Mm. the centuries so a very big complicated Mm. issue
0: well let me ask you just one final question Stephen uh, which is also I suppose a big open-ended question but presumably you see this book as opening up questions rather than giving answers what do you think the interesting questions are now for people to to take from this book and and pursue
1: Well, I I hope people will. I mean, I'm certainly not going to write another book on the subject. I mean, I suppose the the nicest thing would be if people really did think, gosh, this is a, a terrific subject, but he hasn't got it all right, so I'm now going to show him where he went wrong. I mean, I would feel very flattered if people were to do that. I, I suppose one thing I'd say is that I, you know, I don't work in isolation, obviously, and to some extent I think I'm part of a, of a, a larger current of work. For example, there's a lot of work going on at the moment, some of it indeed very close to where we're sitting at the moment, on ancient emotions and the history of emotions, hmm. uh, which is a kind, you know, kind of kindred subject. Laughter itself is not an emotion, but it is a vehicle of emotions uh, and, a, and an expressive gesture uh, of, of emotional states. So there's a lot of work going on on... on Greek antiquity, in relation to the history of the emotions. There are also other kinds of work being done on body language in antiquity. Mm. And so, you know, to some extent, I think what I've been doing here is part of this bigger field which has got its own momentum. So yeah, I would, you know, I would like it if people, um, like it very much if people were to think, well, yes, this is showing that one can do a lot more with laughter than we'd realised. Because obviously there is a sort of intuitive sense that laughter is so evanescent, you know, it, it's, it's gone, real laughter is gone almost as soon as you, you're you aware of it, uh, most of the time. Whereas it does, what I've tried to show is it leaves very extensive cultural traces once you're in a culture where people are reflecting and thinking about it as intensely as the Greeks did. And also, I, I, I just perhaps one very last point, which I've hinted at already, I'm very, very um, keen myself on the idea that one one should try to read different sorts of texts side by side, whereas, you know, characteristically, people who work on Greek philosophy don't work on Greek comedy and vice versa. Mm. People who work on Greek medical writings, you know, don't work on, on Greek comedy, and the, the, people who work on Homer don't normally read mm. <laughs> necessarily a lot of Lucian and so on. I, I think when you put, when you read a, Kind of cross section of a culture in this way, you see things differently. I mean, you have to work very hard because, you know, you can't just dip in and out of things. Mm -hmm. It is hard work. But reading across the culture, reading across the kind of grain of standard institutionalized ways of compartmentalizing things, I think that's also something I hope the book might help to encourage others to take up.
0: Stephen Halliwell. Greek Laughter, the winner of the John D. Kritikos Prize, is available in paperback now. That's all for this edition of Podularity, but I hope you can join me again next time for more authors and books in a pod. And coming up in two weeks' time, an in-depth interview with 2009 Booker Prize winner Hilary Mantel. Until next time, thank you for listening, and goodbye.